On this week's Bet the Process podcast, uh, unfortunately, Rufus will not be joining us as he is knee-deep in some U.S. Open futures and whatnot. Maybe we can get him to tweet out some information about what he's on in the U.S. Open so he can make up for or our Bubba fiasco from the Masters. But we will be talking to Ted Knudsen from StatsBomb, who is the smartest analytics guy that I know in the world of soccer, uh, worked for Pinnacle for a while, and we're going to be talking through a lot of his vast experience about sports gambling and analytics. It's a pretty fascinating conversation. So as always, the Bet the Process podcast is brought to you by the Sports Action app, where whose offices I'm actually in today. Uh, the Sports Action app is the best way for you to track all of your gambling information, etc., uh, and get great content, and it's available for free on the Google Play Store and the iTunes Store. So with that, let's start the process. Now welcome in Ted Knudsen, um, who is what I would consider to be one of the preeminent soccer analytics people in the world. I don't know that many of them, so I feel really comfortable in saying that you're the preeminent. <laughs> you're, you're definitely the most, the smartest one that I know, which is really all that matters. Um, and because my world is really small, and it, that's all that matters. It's what's in my world. Uh, but just to tell a little bit about you, I, I know that before that you had done quite a bit of professional uh, betting in the world of soccer. Um, I think that the first time that you and I talked at Sloan, um, you kind of blew me away with the amount of, uh, you know, like I always think like, oh, you know, like these people that that bet on sports and, you know, talk about it, they're just small, they're small time, you know, they're you know talking about dimes on game and that kind of thing. And then you told me about some of the money that's bet uh, in Europe on soccer and it made me feel like a, a small freckle in the universe. So um, now you have Stats Bomb, which we're going to talk a little bit about, which is uh, fascinating to me just because it's something I always have wanted to do and understand if you could build like an analytics service for sports. And it seems like it's something that you're doing and you're doing quite successfully. So with that, let's kind of dive into things. Um, first of all, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, apologize if there's a, a small child shouting in the background. That'll end soon. Uh <laughs> See, I went into an office rather than doing this at my house because I've then been we wouldn't have had. In my house, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about how you got into the world of soccer analytics in the first place. Oh God, um, this is so long ago. Um, Jesus. So like I started gambling professionally in like 2005, 2006. So like a long time for me anyway, uh, for, for some of you that may be a heartbeat. Um, and I really like it, it's 20 years now um, since I became a fan of like soccer itself. It happened during the World Cup when I was graduating from university in 98 and it was uh, it was France. And so like you'd wake up in the morning and there'd just be football on or soccer on all day. And you're like, hey, this is pretty cool. I kind of like this. So um, so that was when I became a fan, but I didn't start like messing around with like the gambling stuff until uh, much later. Um, but then you know, it was kind of a thing where I was part of this small syndicate group and they're like, we hear that the World Cup's really soft. Um, maybe you should uh, take a look at it because you understand the game. I was like, yeah, but I've never gambled on it. And like, that actually is pretty significant. Like I work in analytics and people are like, hey, do you play, uh, do you play um, fantasy sports? And I was like, no, because I don't understand the rules. And they're like, oh. <laughs> That's really weird. And I, but like it is, it's all rule based, right? And so unless you start testing it and figuring out what you think works and what doesn't, like you don't really know anything. Interesting. So it was basically, but then, but, but how quickly did it take you to feel comfortable that you could apply sort of your knowledge and your analytics to beat the market? Um, I would say like at least one tournament where you're like poking around and some things are pretty obvious. Like the nice part about like the World Cup or the old Super Bowls or like even the NFL playoffs and stuff like that is like the the sharp versus square side tends to be a little more obvious. And so you're like, OK, well, yeah, I, I think I've got to lean on this. And then maybe you look at some of the market action and you're like, OK, this seems like it's probably right anyway. And you're learning from that process. But I think so I mean, there's like this huge story behind this. I don't know, what, know if you want to get into it about um, 
the pinnacle days and how we were kind of thrown into the deep end of, of soccer and knew nothing. Uh, I could tell you all sorts of stuff about back then, but that was also so were like you Were you working for Pinnacle at that time? Uh, not at that time. So that was the year before we started at Pinnacle. Basically, I started in April of 2007, which was effectively you know three months after after the, the blackest day in American sports betting history when Pinnacle just kicked everybody out and paid them all off. What was go go through that because I think like you know our listeners probably don't even know the whole story and also like I would love to hear a little bit about like how you even got involved with Pinnacle and and what what things were like there. So um, back then, so back in this World Cup period, like two thousand six, uh, basically you had like it was pretty good gambling for Americans. Uh, you had some good sites, you had some low vig sites, um, and, but Pinnacle was like clearly the best of the lot. And uh, effectively, what happened was. Um, on one day, like Eugea hit, and that was like, oh God, this sucks. And then Pinnacle decided to completely leave so the market. So just for our listeners, Eugea is the unlawful internet gambling act, and it was basically like the first thing that that the first step towards like getting rid of these offshore bookmakers. Right? That's right, and and basically it became much harder to move money around. And obviously, if you're a gambler, like moving money is pretty crucial. Um, so so basically that happened, and then a number of things sort of fell off of that whether it be like the the poker stuff which some uh, some places were looking at it that were publicly listed and, and terrified about the u.s coming after them or or like you know pinnacles owners decided to basically leave the u.s market and cash out 70 percent of their business in one day and basically they reduced everybody's limits to like one cent or something insane the that day <laughs> so you woke up and you're like oh my god what just happened <laughs> in, in nfl playoff season <laughs> That, you know, that is like, it's like when you're gambling and all of a sudden you realize like on the first day of say March Madness or something that your model, there's like a tech glitch in your model and you're not sure why it's not functioning correctly. And you're like, uh, maybe we're not going to be able to bet anything today. And it's like the worst feeling in the world. Like the idea that, and, and like the opportunity cost is probably not as big as you even think it is, but the idea that like you were geared up to do something and all of a sudden you can't, that, that's like one of the worst feelings as a gambler. Sure. Or that you just have to start paying 110 constantly as opposed to 105 for Americans. I, I don't right. know how many, uh, how many Europeans listen to this, but like that's like, we just doubled the cost of doing business. So that's pretty horrific as well. So that happened. And, and at that point we're like, well, I was part of a, a three person group and we were getting more data friendly and we were doing lots of stuff on NBA and like baseball season was like by far the most lucrative time of the year for us in 2007 uh, to 2006 or whatever. And so it's like, well, somebody's got to leave the country. <laughs> and I was like, okay. But thankfully what happened was um, Pinnacle, Pinnacle had a relationship with our group and uh, we started talking to them about it. And basically we, uh, we decided that we would, at least two of us would go work for Pinnacle at the time. And obviously Pinnacle now has cut off their US business. Uh, so they're like, well, we're not working on U.S. sports as nearly as much. You need to build something else. And that something else was very clearly soccer because they wanted an international uh, space. So we started building products for them. And uh, but the funny part was like, you know, Pinnacle's traders, especially like the, the big wigs at the time, were fairly arrogant about it. And so like, oh, yeah, we get great action and great information. And so you should just, you know, sort of trust a lot of what we get. Whereas in reality, like the soccer market was completely and utterly dominated by Asia and we knew absolutely nothing about what we were doing and so like the learning curve on that from from day one of like August of 2007 and, and the start of the season was uh was basically two and a half months of getting your teeth kicked in until you finally realized like all right cool well we're gonna re not listen to everything that they told us before and you know, we're gonna learn this on our own and from that point forward like especially uh, I think beginning of December we just didn't lose, uh, but it took a little while. And, and that's kind of the, like the, the whole gambling process where you have a learning curve. You need to know that you don't know anything. You need to be risk averse as you're learning. But then then you open it up a little more and you get more comfortable and you start to bet a little more. And then suddenly you're like, all right, well, we're pretty smart and let's continue learning on this. So that was uh, it's kind of a very long story for how I got involved. But that that was uh, that was back in the day anyway. So when you were building soccer products for them, what does that mean? You're just building new types of bets for them? Or are you pricing them? Or what does that mean? Okay, so the the way that soccer worked at Pinnacle in 2007 was basically they copied the lines from, um, I think, SBO bet. 
and then somebody would would run those lines and like you'd get a few guys on a weekend that would you know in a terrified fashion have to to run those lines and try and crack sculpt a position or a profit or whatever um and what we did like that was just a handicap than a total because like asian handicaps uh there were operating in the same way that american work was there's no ties between like the 1x2 which is the three-way money line that exists in soccer there's like no math around it there's no what we call buy sell which is alternate lines on the handicap so like in american sports you know we'd know everything from from a zero up to like a minus 14 in in nfl like you could you could be able to price all of that out and it all exists on like one probability continuum uh, you pay more for if you wanted to to buy extra points, you pay, you know, or you could sell points back to the book and get a uh, better VIG and, and a better price. So that's the whole concept behind a buy sell. None of this existed in soccer. <laughs> and, and so we spent a good long time sort of building that and putting it into the market and proofing that and putting it in the market. Um, we did it for all sorts of different sports. We did it for tennis uh eventually and and that was kind of the the that's what's called building the products um there was a guy named v that did a lot of the the hard probability work at the time um and then like i did a lot of the the sort of applied model work which is basically going into the market and you know building teams to test this stuff out and then coming back and saying okay i think we've got holes here or there um, and so that was like f the first three, four years of my life at Pinnacle. Uh, also, we built the live departments. Um, so like they didn't really exist back then. I had like a year long fight to get all the NBA games up <laughs> back back in 2008 or like some of the senior traders were like, why would we do this? I was like, look, this is the way of the future. Like we just need to get it done, get the product out there, get the baseball product out there. Every game, every single uh, inning change, every single commercial, let's do it that way. So that was the the way that we we kind of got it underneath the the management approval because we couldn't do like fully live because that was like too scary. That's crazy. It's like amazing. <laughs> like I, to be honest, like I I knew a lot that you'd done a lot in this. I didn't realize how much. Um, so then, so then, when did you leave Pinnacle? Um, so, basically, my wife and I. <coughs> <laughs> we're pregnant with our second child. The first one was Ginger, and we were living on the equator in Curacao. And if uh, <laughs> if, you, if you've been there, like having ginger kids and and skin cancer is actually a significant worry. So we decided. I shouldn't to laugh start. at that, but sorry. <laughs> That's fine. It's a funny story. Um, <laughs> so, uh, actually, they went back when they were they were children, and they got involved in or like their pictures were in some sort of like island wide, you know, young pictures of toddler contest, and it was like really weird that there were these two ginger <laughs> kids in like the whole of Curacao. Um, but uh, so we were pregnant with our second, and decided to move towards grandparents. Um, so I was there for like three and a half years, four years, and then uh, so running things, and then handing them off to the current who person who currently runs it, which is Marco Bloom, head of sport. Um, and then I ended up doing a lot of work on sort of revamping the tennis department, but also just sort of chilling out a little bit, working on um, working on the live stuff on still trading Premier League. And finally, um, starting to do some predictive modeling of my own because we finally had like granular stats that you would get in baseball. But I'd never seen that for soccer for like years and years. And obviously, you get super busy with stuff. You don't pay much attention, but it, it appeared at one point. What what are those granular stats? That that was actually one of the things. Like not to get non sequitur in it, but like I've always wondered about building sort of like bottoms up models in soccer because of what stats do even use. So in in granular soccer stats, what 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 do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I was excited about the player perspective because, like, I I have notes from uh, a trip that I took to to Prague in like 2005. I even tried to collect a little bit of my own data in 2006 for the World Cup, uh, and it turned out to be really hard. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is much more difficult than I was expecting. But you know, you start with things like you have in hockey, uh, which is another invasion sport. So you're looking at um, you know shots, um, potentially things that lead up to shots, um, sequential type stuff. And, and eventually we realized that like hockey wasn't quite the right model because hockey at the time was treating all shots as equal, where in reality, you know, especially in soccer, it's very clear that all shots are not equal. Um, so then you start building what are called expected goal models, but those might have some biases in the data collection. Um, so like there's lots of ways to go about it. You can do 
um, you know, you can kind of look at even just goals. And as you get a bigger sample size, like those become pretty strong kind of um, power index type things for attack and defense. And there are different ways to go about it. Like the Dixon Coles thing is a pretty classic example. Like I'm getting really esoteric in models, but there, there are different frameworks that you can you can start to build out of these stats, depending on A, what's available to you, but B, what you find really matters from a model perspective. Hmm. So you got that stuff, you were excited about it, then you needed to move away from the equator and you moved to London at that point or England at that point? Yeah, England. Uh, we live in Bath, which is about an hour and a half outside of London. Okay. And, and then just, you just decided to working on stuff. Got it. So that like basically opened your eyes to the opportunity around soccer. You left the dark side and became part of the good side and started looking at ways to basically <laughs> beat, beat the market in soccer, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But also to be able to start evaluating players as well, because like um, the cool part about soccer, unlike the, the U.S. systems, is like you can directly attach a value to a player and you can keep track of sort of profitability and you can put, you know, this is a, a good transfer because they paid like a lower price than you'd expect versus a skill set this is a higher one. And so that led me into actually working inside of soccer. And like there was a, a time where I was like, oh, this would be really cool. I could be like Billy Bean of uh, of soccer. Um, right. But the Billy Bean of soccer seems like way more interesting than the Billy Bean of baseball. Well, I don't know. Billy Bean apparently has added over a billion dollars worth of value to the A's over a certain period of time. So I guess that was probably pretty interesting and lucrative for a while. But yes, the Billy Bean of soccer, like it seemed like it'd be exciting. Well, it's just there's more opportunities, right? Like just like <laughs> we were saying, it's like this free market for players, and and there's just there's just so much more going on with soccer than there is with baseball. I mean, oh, absolutely, and it still is. It's still just this massive thing, and like the inconsistencies in this market are going to exist for a really long time. Um, so it's still fun to to be involved too. Like we. We at StatsBomb, so tying all of this in together, like um, I came out of the football, uh, or sorry, the soccer world after two seasons and uh, and looked around and like nothing had changed. Like it hadn't radically developed like the NBA market where you saw, you know, Maury and, and tons of other people get hired all at once. Um, right. And in like one fell swoop and like they just really invested in analytics. Like I came out and soccer had hadn't really moved at all. And I was like, oh, well, that's really weird. That also makes it harder to get another job like this. <laughs> um, so basically, oh, and, and the group that I worked for was uh, a professional gambling or a guy who owned a syndicate uh, ended up making enough money to buy two different football clubs, in this case, Matthew Benham and Brentford and Michelin. But that's actually like not an uncommon story over here. Tony Bloom owns Brighton, who's in the, the Premier League. Um, the Coates family, who are basically Bet365, own uh, Stoke City, uh, who have been in the Premier League for a very long time, just got relegated. So like, it's a fairly normal thing. And Matthew and I talked a lot of the same language about like data and stats and, and kind of how to evaluate stuff. So that's kind of uh, where I ended up inside of football. Then I came back out, started my own company called StatsBomb to do analytics for clubs, but also to, to build our own tool set so they'd have like a, an easier way to evaluate players and opposition scouting. And we got to the edge of the data set. I don't know if you've ever had this happen before, <laughs> where you're like, God, if I just had better data, I'd be able to do awesome stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the, isn't that the nature of all of this at some level like it all whenever i talk about the concept of data and analytics right i, I draw this like pyramid and at the bottom of the data it's like the three stripe pyramid and at the bottom is data the second is like analytics and the third is implementation and the data piece is always the limiting factor and like that's why i think it's so interesting um how much people don't understand that like at the core data is probably even the best place to create your advantage because analytics is a commodity implementation is obviously really important and challenging i think analytics is the piece that people focus on the most and it's probably the least interesting in terms of gaining advantage because most of those skills are commoditized that's people are built doing the same models and the same methods and etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, whereas the actual ability to create an information asymmetry or an advantage around data is important and then actually like how you implement this so like if you think about this in gambling parlance right implementation is like the execution which is a huge piece of who's successful as a professional sports better building a model is actually not even the hardest part at all about being a successful sports better sure right a lot of it's like data cleaning and validation and making sure that your model is predictive and not overfit and stuff like that like that's a thing but it exists on top of data 
and then it takes smart people to find the holes and that's usually where we use gamers to to do it uh turns out magic the gathering is really good at building guys that can deal with incomplete information and so a lot of our hires at pinnacle uh were that but there are also plenty of guys huh. that worked in hedge funds that were former magic people there are plenty of people that are on final final tables at the world series of poker like justin bonomo has been on a heater recently like that he used to sleep on my floor at grand prix for magic back when uh when we used to do that stuff uh david williams is another big one that's a that's a magic player so it's kind of funny that like all of that came together and that's like really the implementation side those are the gamers that figure everything out so with stats bomb like we got to the edge of the data set and we said well we need better data how are we going to do this and so we created our own and that's what we launched uh, like literally a month ago uh, with the idea in mind that you know having been inside of gambling i knew kind of what i wanted from from that perspective if i wanted to go that way or to make it available to to professional gamblers on there but also for teams they were they were kind of ending up in the same place if they'd spent a good amount of the last few years like doing analysis and so we decided to to dramatically upgrade the 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 potential public data set that you could buy <clears throat> Where, how did you, how are you building this data set? Are you literally having people watch games and, or do you like, what's the, what's the data set you're building? Sure. So it's an event-based data set because you can't get tracking data uh, in any sort of scale in, uh, especially if you're not a team, like the teams. So a Premier League team, if you're in the Champions League or you uh Europa League, you could get Premier League tracking data and you could get whatever you can get from UEFA, which would be like your your particular tournament. But that's not available to the public. You can't buy it. Uh, and gamblers would love to buy it, but they can't do it. So we, we kind of built the next level uh, sort of merge between event data and tracking data. So we've got more off the ball information. Uh, like when there's a shot, we now have the goalkeeper and all the defenders around it. Um, so like that, that's kind of where we we went towards and the funny thing is like we're now doing a lot of the same initial research that we did back in the day because we don't know very much and so we have to we have to learn all this on the fly <laughs> how did you guys come up with the framework to start doing the data collection um i mean i know so let me give you an example this is these are fascinating right because this is like at the core of all of it and one of the stories i often tell is about um, there was an executive from an NFL team, um, and this is back in the day when, you know, like they were just figuring out that the left tackle was super important. And he like looked at this, you know, the the pay scale and he said, God, the left tackle is the second highest paid position in the NFL. That's it's crazy. And no one has any stats to say who is good and who is bad. And so he started talking to coaches and and talking to executives um, and, and asked them, like, what makes a good left tackle? And he's, they would say things like, oh, it depends if it's a pass or a run or you know, they, he'd ask them, what do left tackles do on any play? And, and he ended up building this sort of like decision tree that led him to like 36 different outcomes, good and bad, that a left tackle can do on any given play. And then he paid these like high school coaches to go back and watch video of every single left tackle and then started creating this framework for that. But he, it, this was a long process where he just talked to a ton, ton of people in the industry. Did you go through something similar or have you gone through something similar in soccer or, or was this just like collection of knowledge over time that led you to understanding how to build this, this sort of framework? So it's really funny to think of like the different models and the different data sets that, that I've done modeling with or, or helped do modeling with since 2006. In 2006, like we basically had scores, um, <clears throat> like halftime, full-time type stuff, but it, it's all just sort of outcome-based and probability and distributions. It's very frequentist type stuff with some, some Bayesian overlay, assuming that the future kind of works how the past has. And mostly for soccer, it's been that way. So that was like the first one. And then um, I went inside the syndicates and like we wanted to we knew that some of the syndicates collected their own data and you know potentially had possibly the best data in the world on this stuff but it was for their specific purposes which is basically evaluating chances at a team level not player level type stuff so like that didn't actually help the stuff where we wanted to to find kind of arbitrage uh, opportunities on the player side by players that were really good in different leagues that people didn't, didn't know about for cheap and then bring them over here and then sell them on at a big multiple. Um, and then now kind of having been inside of the teams, we now have a, a broader understanding of what they want to do. And like, I've done a lot of sort of practical coaching type stuff myself, but like, we're constantly asking, you know, what do you need to know? What would make your life easier? Um, how do you prep? Like, what does your analysis cycle look like for, for each week? And so, We've done this combination of stuff where we kind of, I think we've got more granular element of the, 
what the syndicates would do because we've taken a lot of the subjectivity out of chance uh, chance evaluation. Now it should mostly be um, objective model analysis, and you know you can build the you can build neural networks that are black boxy, but really you still want to be able to build all the bits before that, so you kind of know how it's coming out. Uh, and then we can also like extrapolate that across the whole player population because we've got all the passes, we've got pressures, which ended up being a big thing that teams cared about. Uh, it also helped to to find out that you know pressure regains on the the former data set from people that are competitors to us, um, you know, ended up yielding probably better chances because there would be fewer defenders in the way. So like all of this has kind of combined to create this much bigger, broader thing. I think of where I started and it was like so much worse than, than where we're at now. But I wish that I had that data back then because we could have done amazing things with it and made so much money. <laughs> we did make money, but like could have been so much better. It's like talking to her all about and Bob's like, man, if 10 years ago, I would have just crushed every day. And uh, there was this time at Sloan, actually, on the on the panel that you were at. But like maybe five years ago, Bob was on with a guy from Cantor Gaming. And I felt like I was the elephant in the room because he's talking about how much easier it used to be to bet on um, NBA and make money and how much softer the lines used to be, especially at halftime. And I was like, oh, yeah, we fixed all that because they were just big holes and the market didn't know what those things were supposed to were supposed to equal. <laughs> now, was, that was when you were a penny, you fixed that stuff. Yeah, we closed a lot of holes. Sorry, gamblers. Um, I apologize about that. See, that's what happened when you you hire <laughs> professionals. I told you you went to the dark side. That was I know. I wasn't. You know, we'd be all living in the. See, the problem is you were already living in the Caribbean. Yeah, like well, we were talking I, about, like, oh yeah, we need people would say you get rich and go move to the Caribbean, but you already live in the Caribbean, so you just. Me, Killed it for all of us. Mistakes were made, Jeff. Like you should have started wearing uh, costumes earlier on your uh, professional blackjack tour. Well, the problem, you... the problem with blackjack though, is it's like we we talk about this all the time, and it's it's a complete example of like this. If you think about that triangle, like the data is sort of well known, the you know the analysis is well known, the implementation is probably the the most challenging part about it. But there's no differentiator for any of this. So, you know, it was really easy for them. It's easy for them to close the holes on that. And then I guess what you're saying is like wearing the costumes would have been the next implementation side. And then you wouldn't, have, you know, but it's so easy for people to figure out you're counting cards. That's the worst part. Like any, any <laughs> monkey can just sit there and like watch you. And you can't, there's only so much like we, we played around with doing a lot of other techniques that didn't look like traditional card counting, like shuffle tracking or whether it's, you know, like even just betting a bunch of money off the top and losing a small amount of the EV just to sort of throw them off. Um, but at the end of the day, counting cards is counting cards. And so you, you do get nailed. But for you... The same thing for, for your gambling sign signatures, actually. So that's kind of a, an interesting thing that you won't see on the on the front side. But like most gambling bookies uh, evaluate their, their customers in different ways. So the, the square books, especially the European ones, are evaluating you, looking for any sign that you might be sharp, um, that, that you're not action that they want, because they want to kick out good action so that they, they have as soft action as possible possible uh, they want a couple of sharps but like not guys that are really aggressive or like they want to know exactly who the sharps are um versus like a, a pinnacle and like the the big books in asia they want to evaluate you to one see who you are as quickly as possible see if you're sharp also see what sort of line movement you have because there's like two vectors from customer um evaluation one is do you have positive line movement? Like, are you predictive of big syndicate moves or big money moves later? And then two, like, do you win more than you would expect based on your bets? And those don't actually have to overlap that often, which is kind of intriguing. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you when you mentioned those, I mean, where do you think Chris fits into that in terms of the, the way they look at player profile? I don't know that much inside of Chris. Like we always saw them from the outside. Um, you know, they they always had good information on the American side sports, but not necessarily good in, on anything else. And that was a thing that you know we we kind of valued. But people. So the reason why I mentioned your gambling signature is because usually, no matter how much you try to disguise yourself. Um, you know, you will be found out or like have a reasonable indicator that you are this person after so many bets, especially if you like have similar patterns. So like the degree that you have to even mix up your, your pattern betting online mm. is quite significant. And so you're and saying they will even so. know that you are like you set up another account and they'll know you were like this other person. Because like how people bet is just, you know, it, it's, it tends to be the same time and time again. And so you have to hmm. do it in, in different ways or break things up. It's There's complexity to it. And I, I know this because, I, as you say, I came to the 
Dark good side. side from the like side or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. When uh, you when you were at um when you were Penny, like what percentage of betters like were actual what you would consider to be sharps or what what you know what like how often do you guys do you guys come across sharps and, and Penny is probably a skewed thing right because it's a sharp book so people know they can bet there but you know what what percentage of people there are actually like sharps making money. Um. So that's interesting, and and it's difficult to answer just because, um, you know how poker has leaks on like different hands and stuff, and you do your poker tracking to to try and analyze do you have leaks in your game. Um, betters have leaks too, and you can be sharp in like a couple of sports or a couple of leagues in a sport, but not necessarily sharp across your account, and that makes it complex too because like you have to get a really high end statistically in order to tell whether that's true or not um also like having bet this professionally and having seen like just sick poor numbers runs like you really start to believe in the law of large numbers and you're like well we're pretty sure that this is this account but they haven't won this year and we know that they've won the last five years uh so we're not really sure what to do with them like did the market crack their model does this happen did that happen um so like it's difficult to to consistently say that customers have this edge or do not have this edge you kind of treat them with care almost regardless especially if they're big money betters but some people have like years worth of accumulation like there were a couple of accounts in japan that were both sharp on japanese baseball and japanese uh soccer and you're like you love these guys because they're reliable you know they'll bet like two dimes at a pop when you're open for 10 uh and and they they give you like really good indications um so i know it's a very non-answer to an answer but i just it's quite complicated i would suspect that you know there are plenty of sharps and they mix up their action um you love a reliable sharp that stays there but you know people will fall off and you know i know for a fact that there are baseball models that used to be really profitable in the 2005 to 2010 era that just don't have the same level of profitability because the market got much better Okay, so that's that's actually a really good question and a, something I think about a lot and I don't have an answer for. So I'm, I'm wondering if, what your answer to this is. One of the things, so I'm, there's this new book that I'm going to write one day. I keep threatening to write it, but I'm too lazy to actually do it. My first <laughs> book was about how data, uh, Blackjack is like this perfect Petri dish to tell you, to teach you how to be data-driven and to do data-driven decision-making and to understand overcoming cognitive biases, all these kind of things. But the reality is the real world is not like blackjack it's not stable over time it's not you know stationary it's you know it's not a closed system etc you don't know all the rules in a situation like sports betting where there are concerns about like being so process driven that results over the course of like you said a year could be poor but yet you believe in your process and you don't want to necessarily give up. How do you deal with that concept of understanding, say, short-term variance versus, you know, maybe needing to reevaluate your model? God, I've, I've seen this at every level uh, and, and it, it, it happens all the time. And the funny thing is, like, you try and deal with it as best you can. Even, you know, I'm 12 years into this and you still, like, are like you know i believe in math <laughs> i haven't I, math is the religion that I, I am involved in and yet occasionally i question my god <laughs> and that's um like you know i, I could tell you last year um sort of gambling uh from a, a soccer perspective we had a really shitty run at the beginning of the year um on like chinese and i know there were spots and i talked to people in in the gambling groups and they're like oh we think china might be fixed and i eventually came to the conclusion that China wasn't fixed. It's just not a big market. And it's easy to overload that market and push it really hard, especially if you're, you know, we've seen plenty of times in the past where like a big, a big punter that just likes to bet on, on some teams they like, they can completely demolish a market, but that doesn't mean that it's fixed. Um, but that's always a, a risk and a care for the book, especially when in the past, China has been fixed. Uh, Russia has been fixed. Uh, Greek has been fixed. It doesn't necessarily mean it is now. Um, and so like what we did was we we did a full analysis of this. You go back to your numbers, you see, you know, does this make sense? Has the market changed? If you've got the ability to do time sequence type stuff, is somebody else like dramatically changing the market uh, dynamics of this? You don't have the, the transparency that you do of like financial markets, um, unfortunately. But, you know, you also have a lot less information out there, I guess, if you if you do it smartly. But yeah, from a pinnacle perspective, like I saw the most, like we, I think we had a, 
a year in baseball, which is kind of the biggest possible thing that you could you could do in terms of N, but a year in baseball where we basically didn't make any money, like broke even slightly slightly down. And you're like, yep, same process, mostly the same information, game operates the same, but the Yankees are just unbelievable at covering. <laughs> and you're like, these things happen. And so you you finally get to the point where, you know, if you need to be very conservative about your bankroll kind of at all times. And if you're, if you're a professional gambler, like you learn that too, like you often start out very punchy, almost regardless of your edge. But if you want this to be your long-term as opposed to like a hobby or a sideline, you got to be really cautious about which edges you push and how big you push it. And you want to continue to exist for years, not for months. Yeah. We had a whole conversation Rufus and I did um, like on our last podcast about Kelly and what percentage of your bankroll you should be betting, et cetera. And he bets, I think, a quarter Kelly roughly on his stuff. And then we were we were talking a little bit about how much he's ever risked on like what percentage of his bankroll he's ever risked on a bet. So like when you guys did money management, were you guys what percentage of Kelly were you doing, assuming you were using Kelly at some level? Yeah, somewhere between an eighth and a quarter. Never more than a quarter. Um right. But it also depends on on like your actual bankroll, right? Like your bankroll that's committed right now, is that your real bankroll? Or do you have like side funds in case things go really bad? Like, you know, looking at the- Rufus the, believes the, the, his bankroll is his, his net worth, period. So like that, that's kind of like what you're saying. Same that's thing. fairly punchy, but yeah, I mean, if if that's if that's the level that you roll at, you know, that's pretty cool. Like the the McGregor like Floyd Mayweather fight, you just you're like whatever you can get down on that was was a very interesting number. And so like that's those are those cases where you're like, unless this is what fixed, do you think the what do you think the edge was the true edge in that in that fight was some massive amount it was like four to one right that was the 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 number so like minus three seventy six. Yeah, i think it got down to minus 400 yeah yeah um so yeah you could easily bet i mean 10 percent of your bankroll on that one would but so okay so i obviously that i think anyone that is like somewhat professional better knew that that was a huge edge but that's an interesting one because it's not really like, how do you price that from a true price standpoint? Uh, yeah, I don't have a straight answer for you on that one. Uh, it's it's mostly, um, you know, does this make sense? No. Let's look for all the possible alternatives that terrify us. Does it still make sense? No, still not sense. <laughs> and you just keep going back to it. You're like, if I could be as cautious as I want to be, and I would still be putting 5% of my net worth on this fight. And that's where you end up. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, that was, that was like a one, you see the, so hard though, right? Because like, I feel like that was like in a once in a lifetime gambling opportunity, but. But those happen like not... every five years. <laughs> gambling life stands are very short, right? What's your half-life in gambling? So. <laughs> I guess so. Like, I guess it's like one of those, uh, they, they talk about like the last economic meltdown that we had and they're like, the, you know, Nassim Tlaib writes this crap about black swans and once in a lifetime. And we have one of those historic, like our economy is always cyclical, right? And like we have one of those meltdowns, what, every 10 years. We're probably headed for one in the next two or three years, I would guess. Who knows sure. what the cause of it's going to be this time, but it'll happen. Speaking of sizing, we should talk about World Cup sizing. Yeah, I would it's, love to. I would love to get your. Degenerate. <laughs> what's that? It's degenerate. It's huge. But, so, like, what if, what's the biggest you've heard somebody actually be able to get down on, like, the Super Bowl or the NFL playoffs or whatever? A uh, couple million dollars, I guess. Okay. And that's, like, a single game. Um, so, like, the World Cup, especially on matches that they're comfortable with, like, it's between, like, the syndicates especially will bet between 1 and 5 million U.S., Mm-hmm. And then, like, that could get bigger as as it goes on. Um, I know. I think during the World Cup, like, uh, I, I I was part of Penny for the last World Cup, so like that was like the most absurd time. Um, but I know also like the syndicates like were easily betting sort of basically twelve to to sixteen million honkies is what they call them, which I think would be like two million pounds, two point five million pounds on a single match on like the handicap, and the market kind of you know. If, if you put that on anything else, including Premier League now, like, it's just such a massive amount of money. You you plow the line. Like, it just moves so much. And you can come back to it and <clears throat> you can try and do it in bits and pieces, but the, the risk is that it runs away from you. Um, 
you do it in the World Cup and like you bet sort of 2 million into the market and it moves like 10, 15 cents and then it restabilizes and you're like, oh my God, the liquidity on this is just obscene for- So where is, uh, where is that all being bet then that that liquidity, is that being bet at Penny or is that been being bet in like these other places, I guess? Um, all into the world. So like the, the world's Asian handicap market is effectively what I would call it. Um, um, yeah, like there are there are a number of like Penny will often have like the biggest single bet, uh, and they let you rebet it. But like if you take that and then you combine it, so say you can get down like two fifty at Penny at the time, and then you know across a number of eight books you can get down another you know eight hundred k or something like that. You're looking at a million a pop. You rebet that it's only on a five or six cent line. It doesn't have to move that much in order to get down two million. It's just bonkers. What's the most that you've ever bet on a game in your syndicate? Oh, God. I, we had a very large amount on a Super Bowl back in the day. Um, I think it was the Eagles one. Yeah, yeah, it was the Eagles one. Um, and I think we middled that. So, like, that was actually... Not the Eagles. Know, not, the, not the most recent Eagles one. No, 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 no. Like, 2006, 2005. One of those, yeah. Um, so Is that the Eagles been, Patriots or... Dude, I, it's, it's been 12 years. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember. But it was definitely, we were on, we were on Donovan, Donovan Nab, right? Um, yeah. And I, I think we hit a middle on on that one. And, and basically, as a percentage of a bankroll, especially, like, just a massive amount. But in terms of um, overall money that you get down, I don't know, probably, like, small six figures. It's not, you know, not enormous type stuff um, for me. Like, I've never been as big as the... The, the Blooms and the Benhams who, who just get down that money. On the flip side, like, you know, at Pinnacle, which you could also, like, almost consider, it's, it's a different sort of syndicate. But, like, you know, across that, like, certainly, you know, the World Cup sizing was was in the the low to mid-seven figures from time to time. When you, when you talk about the Blooms and the Benhams, like, what what do you think they're, like, they're, let's say that they're the ones out there betting a couple of million dollars a game in World Cup and whatever it is in, in Premier League. What do you think their edge was? World Cup is big. Um, the World Cup is just so soft. Like big, like are you talking like 5% or are you talking like 3%? Like what, what their you, old edges. The, what, so, okay. So it's changed over time. The lines have gotten sharper. Uh, I think on the, on the World Cup right now, you could probably, your edge on certain matches will be between 5 and 10. Um, wow. Yeah. And back in the day, like your edge on a Premier League game or a Champions League game could easily be like between 5 and 15 uh, before it, it sharpened up. Um, I know like NBA lines were so incredibly wrong at, at a point, like we'd be, we'd be able to post like a, a minus two and the real value for how the game had gone should have been like a minus five, my, maybe minus six. And, uh, and we get action at that, that minus two uh, and you'd be like, well, this is enormous. So like the, the edge is like really significant there. Um, cause yeah, it's even a halftime. So like it's, you've got more information about what's going on in the game. Uh, but yeah, like the soccer world used to be really soft. It's less soft now. Um, the edge is probably still there, but you, you kind of have to be able to take a lot more variance on board as well. So have you looked at all at, at this year's world cup? I know that off the air, we talked about how your syndicate no longer is, is betting on things. But everyone's everyone's looking for some World Cup picks, especially in the U.S., where we have zero reason to watch this thing unless we got some money riding on this. So I've I've been looking. At, so it's actually quite interesting. I was talking to to somebody recently about um, the we model tracked on Statsbomb like people's World Cup bets, including like the Goldman model and and five thirty eight and a number of other public models, and uh, and outside of their horrific Brazil call and probability, which is basically like not attached to reality. 538's model did quite well. Um, and I kind of, I was like, I was looking for it this time to, to see whether my stuff overlaps. Oh, you're, you're talking about four years ago, right? Yeah. So the, yeah, the, the 2014. Really well. They did really well with like, they had Costa Rica. I remember I bet some stuff basically based on their model just for fun. And one of the things they did was they had, they showed a huge edge in Costa Rica to win their, their, um, you know, which was like something like 25 to one and, and they won. So that means they're geniuses, right? Sample size, <laughs> sample size of one. 
yeah, so well, sorry, well, sorry. Back to what you were saying. You were you were but, looking. But at Brazil didn't polls. win, so like that makes them idiots too. So it's it's, it's the same. Well, so um, Trump 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 won, but so uh, yeah, some of the the five thirty eight models are troublesome, but like they did really well at the last World Cup, and um, so like it's almost as if if you have like a reasonably smart model on international football, you can make pretty good money. I've been looking at the the lines, and there's a lot of stuff on here where I'm like, I just really like dogs. Like especially through the group stage, these, these there'll be plenty of dogs that that cover, and you know there'll be plenty of money out there on the favorites uh, and getting down. Like I think Argentina line moved a bunch today. I think it was closer to like minus one point five neutral, and now it's like getting to a minus uh, one and a quarter. But that's against Iceland, and Iceland usually play pretty tight, and Argentina almost never blow anybody out. Uh, and it's it's that kind of thing. Like you're looking at it for. Mostly live dogs is is what you do throughout the course of the the, the tournament. Um, yeah, I remember like last time around, I just didn't believe the Brazil hype, and so like made a good amount of money on that, despite the fact that like the rest were very lenient towards them. Uh, also, Chile and Colombia seemed to be undervalued quite significantly early on. This time around, um, I'm not sure that it's it's as regionally biased, but it just seems like there are plenty of teams out there that I'm like, yeah, I don't believe that it's a minus one and a half. I might believe one. And when you think about that in probability terms, you ask me about the edge, like that is really significant and that's where it comes from. Interesting. Do you, um, Oh, I had, I have one warning though. Be very careful about like playing big favorites on like an, an outrider or one X two. Um, you don't, you just don't want to pay the big vig because like, things will go weird in, in short tournaments. It's soccer, so like making it through the 90 minutes means that your your bets are usually graded unless you're on a two advance. Like that's the one thing that we see people just like hemorrhage money because they're like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll definitely pay 10,000 on the four to one. Uh, I mean, it happens in American sports too. Uh, this is impossible. Yeah, well, the impossible just happens. So you're out some significant amount of money that you were just trying to win like 1,000 versus your 16,000. Don't do that. <laughs> Right, but that's a that there is the opposite, right, of of the Mayweather McGregor thing that we were just talking about, where the edge came from almost like you know, like almost part of it too was that people would much rather have like been on the one to win you know three side than the four to win one side, and that bias is is what led you know to that advantage to some degree. That's absolutely true. And I agree with what you're you're saying. I'm just saying, I, I mean, especially like also in running, be very careful on, on paying a lot of juice. Um, it's just the soccer is very different than that. This is mostly an understood market. They won't necessarily know how the teams will perform against each other. And the lines will get like a really good update after that first round. So you see kind of how they've been playing. But, you know, some of the, the significant favorites look really rough coming into to this event. Like the, the U.S. team that was fielded this past week against France was not very good. And France struggled with them a lot. Brazil um, look fine, and they finally have like a real attacking power, unlike four years ago. But Germany look really rough coming into the tournament, and it's kind of an open question whether like is everybody super healthy or not. Like Mexico are a pain to play, but like again, Mexico look a little weird too. So like that's all useful information if you have a strong opinion or if you have sort of better analysis that says that you know these teams that have been struggling a little bit that there's some uncertainty in the line. Like if you feel one way or another, either about them or their opponent, like you can make some significant strides on that. Are there any teams that you think are sort of like underrated that you've watched? And, you know, like you, you mentioned underdogs. So maybe are there a couple underdogs for us to keep an eye on? Sure. Um, so I think Nigeria are probably a bit better than they're getting credit for. Like they're three quarter goal dogs against Croatia. I, I respect Croatia, but I think that like Nigeria have a, a pretty good squad. Um, Iceland are, are tough to play against. Argentina is often overrated. As I said, they usually don't blow anybody out. Almost nobody except for Messi scores over the last two years. Um, I do like that squad, but it's just a case of like, when do they ever perform to that? Um, I do like Spain overall though. And if, especially in terms of like the pricing markets, uh, I think outrights it's Brazil, Germany, and Spain. And I would definitely take Spain over Germany there. Um, I'm not sure that I would. So I imagine you're probably the same way. I almost never bet outright markets because it ties up money too long. Yeah, we've but, had, like Rufus and I have had, had this exact conversation. So yeah, but this is a but in, cup, in this case, long, right? yeah. Well, exactly. In this case, in these knockout tournaments that you're basically looking at four or five weeks, you get two options. One is just like this team is undervalued, and and I think they're way better than than everybody else does. And the other is 
this team is undervalued, but I'm going to look to trade out of that and, and make sure that I make a profit on either side later when everybody starts to realize that they're a lot better than they are. Um, but how are you going to trade out of that? You're going to, you're like, I guess like, I always wonder about like hedging out of these situations when like I hear, you know, obviously you hear novice betters all the time talking about like, you'll be able to hedge out of this later and all this kind of stuff. And like, normally you're not going to be able to because the, the VIG coming back and those, you know, those hedges are going to be so big. And soccer, like I'm pretty novice soccer better. So I guess like, what would be the scenario? Like, so let's say that we, let's take this and say like, okay, Ted's right. Let's take, let's buy some Spain. We'll buy some in the, in the outright market and then what is it what are we looking to do later on well i mean so the question is what the overround is also like are you paying like five percent on the full outright are you paying ten percent like you need to be aware of that and you know you need to to do some shopping but hopefully you're paying playing at a place that has fairly low um vig on the overround but say like say you play spain early on and they trounce ronaldo and then they go through their group and they look amazing as opposed to a couple of years ago and say you're on um, England, you think 16 to 1 is too much. You think England finally have their shit together and 16 to 1, like, I think I, I got on Italy and Germany a couple of years ago in Euro, so 2012, uh, fairly early on. They were like, really, uh, Italy are often underrated, but like both of these squads were were pretty good. And you look at Euros, you're like, man, this doesn't make any sense. I can get 13 to 1 on like a Germany or Italy. You know, that's probably decent. So they go through their, their early, and then you get to the semifinals and you're like, all right, well, there, I have lots of options to hedge. I can hedge on the actual outright, uh, or sorry, the game outrights and, you know, cash out there if I want to. And there I'm only paying like 1.25 or 1.5%. So like, that's pretty right. good. Or you could just potentially say, you know, I know that this team is not going to win <clears throat> or very unlikely to win. And I just like to, you know, take my, say, say I paid like a hundred on a 13 to one. So I'd like to take, you know, $400 for the profit or something and walk away with it. Like that's okay. Um, right. You get those options anyway in these short tournaments, as long as you're pretty sure that that you've got you know some live dogs going on, and that's really what you're looking for. Interesting. All right, one one last question. This has been fascinating, by the way. So, what impact? Okay, getting away from the World Cup now and going back to the U.S. market. You know, you're gonna, and I'll probably talk to you about this off off the air because I'm curious to, to know where you're going or what what you're thinking about this, but. What impact do you think like the legalization of sports betting in the U.S. will have on sort of business opportunities around the U.S.? Like if you were um, looking to move back to the U.S., what's the business that you would start um, around this? It really depends on how they legalize, right? Like there are so many options for how they could go about it. Um, you know, some places have done like the parlays nonsense, which is just terrible. Like how customer friendly is it? And that that really dictates what you want to do. But like, also, does but the don't US you think being... that, don't you think that it's like it, it, the market will evolve to become at some point player friendly? That may be in thirty years, or that it's, may be it's in five never years happened from... in Europe. So like, that's that's my cautious note. I, it has never happened in Europe, and so I'm not sure of that. But if it does, like if it if it if it evolves positively at all, but also if it has a a trickle down effect to the worldwide markets, like now that the U.S. is much freer about having gambling, maybe they loosen up some of the regulations. Maybe some of the the worldwide uh, you know sports books that have lower vig are also okay with with taking on more money, or they get more liquidity because of all that. Like that suddenly has just a huge impact on on betters in general. And and you get more positive opportunities wherever you go. Um, for me, you will have more soft money, but the question is whether you know, really sharp and deep pocketed people come in and try and scoop it up. For a small better, it doesn't matter. Like for a small better, you just get better opportunities, and that's awesome. Uh, for somebody who wants to treat this as a hedge fund, then it starts to matter a little bit. <laughs> Got it. All right, Ted, this is awesome. Uh, thanks a lot for the time. Uh, I think I'm going to now um, maybe buy some Spain. I want to have something <laughs> to root for. And I, I, you know, I like, I play a lot of FIFA soccer. So I used to love being Spain back in the day when it was yeah, like, of course. yeah, so they're, they're good to play with. Um, again, thanks for the time. I'd love to have you on again at some point. Um, but this has been awesome. So thank you. All right. Enjoy your World Cup sweats, everybody. It'll be a, it'll be a fun month.